So here we are at the end of December in the year 2017 with a rising anti-monopoly movement. Hey, Stacy, I know that you're not in D.C., but can you tell us what the perspective is in D.C. from very serious people regarding this rising anti-monopoly movement? I don't know if I can speak for very serious people, but I'll, I'll try. All right. Um, so, the, so the good news out of D.C., I think, is that we have got more elected officials who are concerned about growing concentration. So we've got a new antitrust caucus that's formed in the House that lawmakers are joining. Um, and just yesterday, we had a hearing in the antitrust subcommittee looking at whether or not the consumer welfare standard that has guided antitrust policy since the days of Ronald Reagan is the right framework or whether or not we need to enlarge or get rid of that or adjust it in different ways. Cece, so, I'm sorry. Did you say the citizen welfare framework? Um, <laughs> no, I said the consumer welfare framework. Could you just briefly tell us what that is? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, back in the 1970s, there was this movement among economists and law scholars to alter our antitrust laws. And they said, you know, prior to that, for decades and decades and decades, antitrust had had this broad view. It said we need to disperse power, uh, economic power broadly in society in order to protect democracy, in order to make sure that people, when they're selling their labor or selling their goods, have fair access to markets in order to protect our freedom, in order to keep our communities healthy. All of these values were part of the overall framework that guided how we looked at things like whether some companies should be able to merge, um, how we looked at those kinds of issues. But then this group of people came along in the 1970s and they said, no, 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 none of that stuff should matter. The only thing that should matter is short-term prices for consumers. If a merger or you know what's happening in the economy is going to benefit consumers in the, in the short term, then it's a good thing. And that's all that should matter. Um, and so that's what's known as the consumer welfare standard. And it's been the reigning law of the land since the early 1980s. So as I said, the good news is that there's beginning to be this discussion about whether or not that's a good idea, um, whether we should think about how uh, concentration affects workers, affects small businesses, affects communities. People are saying these broader values need to come back into the mix of how we look at uh, antitrust issues. So there was this hearing yesterday in the antitrust subcommittee in the Senate, and you know we had some um, good speakers. Barry Lynn was there from Open Markets Institute and gave a great great testimony about why we do need to have a broader way of looking at, at antitrust. The bad news is that we had folks from the establishment, you could say, um, Carl Shapiro, who used to be in the Obama administration, Josh Wright, who's been a very close uh, ally and, and within the Trump administration on these issues, both of whom, you know, spoke up in favor of this narrow consumer welfare standard. And, you know, we are hearing this sort of pushback from, you know, the antitrust bar, the attorney's bar saying, you know, uh, we don't want to hear what the public thinks about concentration. You know, we want to keep it to those of us who are experts who understand these issues. And this is the way things work. And the folks who are raising uh, questions about concentration, you just don't know what you're talking about. And I find that's a really dismaying way to approach this. It's time to drain the swamp bar. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And of course, all of this, Chris, was happening uh, on the eve of this big net neutrality decision, which is just an earth you know, quake in uh, competition policy. Tell us what you've been doing on that. 
Sure. Let me start by just noting that you've been listening to Stacy Mitchell, the co-director of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Chris Mitchell. I do a lot of broadband work. I oversee our broadband work, at least, and I'm the mouthpiece for re- great research that we do. And then John Farrell works on our energy policy, and he's over here quietly in the corner. If Chris is the mouthpiece, I'm just the ears. <laughs> so, <laughs> Stacey, uh, you know, what you were just saying actually just reminded me of something that I just saw, which was in the discussion today where they repealed network neutrality, the, the principle that basically says monopolies don't get to screw us on the Internet access that we need for our economy to work. One of the Republican commissioners called out the first federal trade commissioner from Obama's, off- from Obama's first term um, and, and said that, that this guy thinks that what we're doing is perfectly fine. Well, it turns out that Obama's first Federal Trade Commission chair is now working for one of the biggest monopolies in broadband (laughs) and is, of course, has a a different point of view now. Uh, A reminder of how we may have come further with a grassroots movement, but still have a long way to go. Um, But the digression aside... What we're seeing is uh, that we just had network neutrality repealed, which is a principle that uh, when you pay for Internet access, you're paying for the entire Internet, that your service provider cannot uh, block sites. It can't decide that some sites are going to load much slower than others because they're not being paying. They're not paying their extortion fees. Um, they can't enact toll booths, um, you know, in a sort of arbitrary and capricious manner. Um, that in fact, uh, the internet is effectively a, a utility. And I don't really like that language because utility is is complicated, and utility can mean different things, and we regulate different utilities in different ways. But it is the difference between something that we rely on and we take very seriously in terms of all Americans having equal access to effectively um, and a system in which people just pay for what they can get and they're at the uh, they're at the mercy of the market. And we've moved very strongly in the direction of being at the mercy of the market. Now, John follows this issue very closely, I know. So I'm curious if you have any thoughts on this network neutrality debate before we, we really focus on um, kind of what we're seeing in the broader anti-monopoly movement over the year 2017 and looking back and then forward. Yeah, you know, the one thought that I keep coming back to in this debate about network neutrality is kind of what does meaningful choice in the market mean? You know, the the folks who were voting for the repeal were suggesting that consumers can exercise choices. This get back, gets back to what Stacy was saying about the consumer welfare perspective around monopoly. And I think, you know, Chris, you've done some excellent work uh, and shared a lot on uh, social media and on our uh, website, the Community Network's website, about the limited choices that people already have. And, and this notion that as consumers, that we can somehow choose, you know, make choices between companies uh, to get what it is that we want, you know, to avoid the toll lanes, to avoid the toll booths, if you will. Um, and yet there aren't really very, very many meaningful choices. And we see that in the energy sector as well. And I'll talk about that more in a few minutes. But um, I think we're at this point and where the concentration is getting so severe that the notion that we can somehow exercise power as consumers uh, is really a misnomer. I really appreciate you prompting me in that way because we've done some interesting research and it's worth noting that the Federal Communications Commission is largely captive of the cable and telephone companies. One of the the side effects of that is that the data it collects is not very good and it's very difficult to deal with. So I want to pay supreme respect to Hannah and Chris in our office who basically cracked open the FCC database and did an analysis to show that 100 million Americans only have internet access through one of the four providers that that we were looking at, Charter, Comcast, AT&T, and Verizon, 
that have a history of violating network neutrality. In, a, in a 50 million uh, households, they only have one option among those four providers. And in another 50 million households, they have a choice between those providers, which is to say that if they don't like the way AT&T is screwing them over, then they can go with Charter and, and, and also not have an open internet through them in the future now that the federal government has abdicated its role as a regulator. So um, you know, we, we put this information out there and we're going to be able to do some more interesting things to show the total lack of market competition. And frankly, there's no sense that there is new effective market competition on the way. It's astonishing what's happening with these gatekeepers. You know, I mean, it's it's whether it's around, uh, you know, the, the cable uh, Internet providers, whether it's uh, what we're seeing with Amazon as a gatekeeper for commerce, whether it's what we're seeing with Facebook and Google. I mean, these platforms that increasingly control and direct the flow of information and commerce in our society and, and you can name a practically on one hand who they are. Um, you know, 90% of global ad revenue is now being picked up by Google and Facebook. It's no wonder that news organizations are laying people off. I mean, they're the ones creating the content, but they're, you know, Facebook has been so effective at creating this walled garden where people get their news there and never actually go to the sites that are generating that content. Um, you know, and, and we've been hearing just in the last few, uh, uh, few days from businesses that are now getting pushed off of a- Apple's App Store. So Apple has said that if you're a small business and you're using one of these sort of template-based programs to generate an app for yourself, say you're a pizza delivery, you know, your pizza business, you want to be able to have customers order through an app and get their delivery set up that way. Um, a lot of times you'll use an off-the-shelf product. It's kind of similar to like WordPress for websites. Uh, Apple has said, no, no, we're going to clean up the app store. So any of these template-based websites, they're going to go. And what that means is small businesses who can't afford to like pay someone to develop an app just for them are going to be completely walled off. And, um, you know, it's just like this, this sort of power to direct commerce, to direct eyeballs, to direct information is really astonishing. I'd just like to amplify what you just said, Stacey, regarding all that ad revenue going, those um, basically Google and Facebook, because there was a time when we were really worried that Craigslist had taken a lot of money away from newspapers because they made a lot of money off of classified listings. But now all of their money has <laughs> gone away um, to these companies. And we need this journalism so incredibly. And this would be a great time to segue into John's piece. But I actually want to just make one other point, which is that um, Stacy's glitching every now and then because she's one of 30 million Americans who live between Maine and Virginia where they're stuck with no good option. She basically only has an option of cable access. And even though she's paying for a connection that would be very good and allow us to have high quality audio. We cannot get that from them on a regular basis from Charter. So um, this is something that Monopoly is impacting our ability to bring you this analysis as we speak. I think we'll come back to telecom a little bit, but John, tell us a little bit about the role of newspapers lately. Yeah, I think this is a really uh, fascinating story. So just in the past few weeks, uh, at the beginning of December, uh, the South Carolina Post and Courier broke an enormous story, uh, just a terrific could have been a series, a terrific piece of investigative journalism looking into monopoly regulated utilities. So I think I just first of all want to highlight that when we talk about the energy sector, we are talking about an area in which the word utility is literally meant and, and describes 
the, the actors and the players in the market, but that this has for over 100 years been a very tightly regulated sector where in, in over 30 states, utility companies have a monopoly over a certain service territory. And if you are a customer, you have only one choice, and that is the utility that the state has chosen to serve you. Uh, and what they found was that um, essentially that these monopoly utilities have grown too powerful for the public regulators to rein in. And part of it was a handout from state government that allowed these utilities to, to get what's called construction work in progress, to essentially take money and collect money from customers for power plants before they were producing electricity. And as the, uh, I, I want to quote what the journalist said who had published this piece that it set off a, quote, bonfire of risky spending, $40 billion by five utilities uh, sorry, by four utilities across five states, $40 billion uh, by these uh, four utilities across five states for power plants that have al almost entirely are, are now defunct, that the projects became so expensive and so unwieldy uh, that they have now been retired. Uh, and yet customers are wholly responsible for the cost of those projects. Uh, they gave as an example, the city of Charleston, South Carolina owes so much uh, to one of these defunct nuclear power plants uh, that it's enough money for them to hire 26 additional police officers on, an, uh, on a monthly basis um, that they pay for power plants that will never produce a single electron. So I just want to hang out here for just one second, John, because you, I think you misspoke briefly and you said customers. Uh, it's worth noting, these are ratepayers, and we use a, a different term for that because uh, these are people that have no choice. And in, in one of the things that this article did really well, I think, was it basically points out that, you know, these are people who are going, who are taking your wallet into the casino in which, you know, they're, they're, they're maxing out your credit card. They're taking the risk. And whenever they win, they walk away with those winnings. And when they lose, you get to pay that credit card bill. Exactly. And, and the trade-off that we made, to be clear, is that a hundred years ago, the trade-off that we made was to say, we'll, we'll allow this monopoly structure, we'll allow people to not have choices as customers, to all be ratepayers. We'll, we'll instate these public regulatory commissions, these oversight commissions, to ensure that that money is spent responsibly. And what this article essentially reveals is that with the help of the legislature, which had in many cases been heavily lobbied and financed by the utility companies, um, that they were able to run away with ratepayer money and and to fritter it away at a time when executives continued to get performance bonuses despite projects that were clearly not going to um, to result in the production of electricity. So it, it's it's an enormous scandal in the southeast, but it actually highlights um, a, an ongoing problem that we're seeing in the utility sector, and it's especially. Uh, becoming poignant now because the technology in the energy system is moving in exactly the opposite direction from monopoly. That while uh, for 100 years this industry was concentrated for the reason that power plants were large and expensive and therefore we believed that we needed large uh, capital-intensive businesses to build them, we're now going in the opposite direction. You know, I, there's no longer a monopoly over power generation. I couldn't put a coal power plant on my roof. It would have been silly. They don't build them that small. But I can certainly put solar panels up there. I can put a battery in my garage to store that energy. I can have an electric vehicle that I can charge from those solar panels. And so we're, we're at this fascinating moment where the utilities, aided sometimes by commissions that they've captured and legislatures, are running in one direction, kind of doubling down on the last century's model of centralized power generation and making incredibly risky bets and at the same time that all the technology and the economic opportunity is moving the opposite direction. And so we have this exciting kind of grassroots resistance 
by customers being able to make different choices. And that's actually spreading as well to cities. You have over 50 cities in the United States that have said, we actually want 100% of our electricity to come from renewable resources and kind of throwing that in the face of the utility and saying, if you can't do it, then we're going to try to do it. And in California, where they have a law enabling communities to make that choice, to choose where they get their power from, 85% of electric customers in California who won't be ratepayers anymore, they'll be customers, by 2020 will have a, a be supplied by someone other than those incumbent utility monopolies, most likely by their own city or county, which will be making those choices for them. So when customers get a choice, they exercise it in a big way. Uh, and, and you can see, of course, from this story in the Southeast, this $40 billion bonfire, uh, why they might want to do so. What's fascinating to me about this reporting about Southern companies and Duke Energy and the other utilities uh, that have been basically, you know, exploiting their ability to take dollars from ratepayers for these obsolete uh, plants, it really illustrates, I think, this problem of when you allow corporations to concentrate so much power and then you expect that there is going to be public oversight. You know, these are publicly regulated utilities. You know, at some point, inevitably, the power of those corporations is they, they become so big that there's no way for public oversight to really be effective at regulating them. So we still have to think about, you know, it's not as though the solution is simply just to have bigger and bigger government. You know, the solution has to be how do we disperse the power to begin with? You know, and it's really exciting to hear that there's so much movement on the energy front to do that. Stacey, I just want to emphasize that point that you make about the limitations of public oversight and of government uh, when these utilities continue to grow and merge. We actually just published a report in the last couple of months on the way that mergers of utilities give them essentially not just economies of scale in, in the economy and building power plants, but economies of scale in lobbying, that they can now learn the best tactics, the best strategies in multiple different states and jurisdictions to get the regulators to let them go their way. And, and for example, in Minnesota earlier this year, we had the incumbent monopoly not getting a satisfactory result from the regulatory commission about building a new gas plant, go instead to the legislature where there are 50 lobbyists, one for every four legislators in the Minnesota legislature, uh, could run around and get them the result that they want, which is a billion-dollar power plant uh, and a big return for their shareholders. When we started off this podcast, I made a mention about very serious people, which is actually a phrase that Paul Krugman uses. And I'm actually not a reader of his, but I just listened to a podcast he did with Ezra Klein. And he introduces this idea, which I'm sure he's talked about before, but I'd never heard it, which was you have conservative professional economists, and then you have professional conservative economists, which I think of as the Wall Street editorial board, which is economists who use language to just justify whatever the big companies want. And one of the things I'd like, John, you to just very briefly react to is nuclear power plants because they played a role in this. And one of the things that just drives me nuts is whenever I hear one of these professional conservative economists talking about how we need more market-driven solutions like nuclear power, how do you react when you hear that? There is no power source for our electric grid that is more subsidized and underwritten by the public sector than nuclear power. They have loan guarantees. They have a limited liability for nuclear accidents. Um, they have uh, guarantees and, and credits and rebates that have been provided by the federal government and by the states. And, and, and right, and storage uh, of, of nuclear waste as well. Um, and in fact, Minnesota, funny enough, is one of the few states to actually charge utilities for that storage, uh, which we should all be doing. 
2017 is a great year to talk about this because nuclear power plants are being propped up uh, in many markets across the country because they are no longer competitive. The existing plants cannot compete. The new plants can't be built. They're simply not competitive anymore against the technologies that we have, rooftop solar, wind power, energy storage. Nobody could build a nuclear power plant, even with all of those loan guarantees and on liability uh, being underwritten by the federal government. Um, and so it just, it, it's laughable, this notion that somehow nuclear power has any role to play in, in, a, in a competitive market in energy. It's really going to be the stuff that's coming from the outside, the, the entrepreneurial solutions like people coming in and helping you install solar on your rooftop, people packaging solar and energy storage or, or you know, ways that you can buy solar along with an electric vehicle. At the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, we are a small nonprofit. Heck, you've been listening to most of our senior staff just now. We're a small organization that does a lot with a limited budget. And when you donate to ILSR, you don't just help us pay the bills. You tell us that our work is valuable and we should keep doing it. Please donate at ilsr.org donate. Once again, that's ilsr.org donate. Donate. Also, please tell other people about our work. Share that post on social media or copy it onto a cassette for that hipster friend of yours. Now, let's get back to building local power. As we sort of continue to talk about some of the major mergers and the, the implications of monopoly power toward the end of 2017. There's another one that's popped up that we want to discuss again before we reflect on how we got here over the course of 2017, and that's Aetna and CVS. Um, why is that a big deal, Stacey? I mean, you're, I see you on the monitor rolling your eyes. This is something that's obviously um, very close to you. Um, you know, I grew up thinking of, uh, of CVS as just a place where I could buy candy bars and and uh, I've since learned that it's something much more different than that. I, I can't even believe that this is on the table for consideration. It's just stunning to me, in part because, you know, CVS is this huge pharmacy chain. You know, obviously, we all experience that. They're, the, they're everywhere. They're, they're um, the biggest or, or the second biggest pharmacy chain. They also own one of the largest uh, pharmacy benefit management companies, CVS Health. Um, and that's a, a company that decides... Uh, what reimbursement rates are for other pharmacies, uh, who, what drugs are covered. They basically manage your prescription drug benefits on behalf of insurers. And CVS has this long track record because of that uh, conflict of interest that they have of uh, basically squeezing independent pharmacies behind the scenes, like basically saying you can either take this reimbursement rate that is so low you will lose money on every prescription drug you fill, or we can just leave you off the list and then people who have this particular type of insurance won't even be able to get their prescriptions at your store. So CVS has been doing that in order to steer people to its own mail order and retail pharmacies using its power as an, as an insurance reimbursement. And then they've also been jacking up prices to consumers and limiting choices. There are lo there's lots of evidence that people want to have choices, that they prefer the service at local pharmacies and they're often being denied that. So now they want to actually go a, a big step further and buy a major health insurance company and have this lock on people um, from start to finish when it comes to health care provision. And they're envisioning this idea of having, you know, more and more clinics and CVS stores. So basically, you know, they'll control your insurance, what's covered, where you can use it, and they will steer people to their own operations. And the idea that given how incredibly consolidated the healthcare system is – 
and that we know that that consolidation is driving the huge increases in prices and is pushing out a lot of community-based hospitals and pharmacies and so on, um, you know, that we would even be talking about this is really astonishing. It is astonishing. And yet I feel like I have a little bit more hope now at the end of the year than I did at the beginning of the year. Uh, we came into 2017 um, looking at uh, an AT&T Time Warner merger, which um, has been blocked by the Department of Justice. And I trust intelligent people that have told me both that the Department of Justice has done this for reasons totally unrelated to the corruption of the Trump administration and other people who have told me that absolutely the corruption of the Trump administration has pervaded the Department of Justice's antitrust units. So I don't know what to believe, but it seems like that's the right decision. You know, if I don't know if you have any comments on that, Stacey, but I'm curious if over the past 12 months you see a shift and you have more hope now, um, you know, perhaps just because the mergers are like slapping everyone in the face at the end of the year. And so that you just can't help, but more people are noticing it. I completely agree with you. I have a lot more hope uh, at the end of the year than I did at the beginning of the year. I think a lot has shifted on this issue. You know, I do think in the case of AT&T Time Warner that the justification that the government is giving for intervening is the right one, which is that we haven't been paying attention to vertical mergers, you know, where you have companies that are at different points in the supply chain, uh, wanting to merge, you know, for a long time, we've thought, oh, that's not a problem. Um, and now when we look back at those previous mergers that happened that were of this kind of nature, we're realizing that those were bad ideas. And uh, people are beginning to look with more scrutiny on this, uh, you know, including in the federal government, which is a good thing. I'm also more, I'm also, uh, more importantly, just incredibly encouraged by the grassroots swell of opposition, whether it's, you know, people insisting on owning their own power, whether it's the level of interest everywhere now in anti-monopoly policy and concentration, um, the fact that we're seeing elected officials respond to that. We've got more and more members of Congress and state AGs and other kinds of uh, local elected officials who are talking about concentration in a way that didn't used to be true. And I think, you know, you talked about the uh, professional conservative economists and sort of the, you know, very important people. I think there's a way in which, uh, you know, the, 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 the the citizens of this country are sort of at the gates saying, no more, no more. The establishment has been making decisions in ways that have not benefited my community. And we've had it. And we're going to start to be, we're going to start to take reins in our own way. What you said about the the vertical mergers, I smiled a little bit because I got interested in um, railroads in part because a lot of the telecom regulation actually sort of came after learning lessons from the railroads. And one of the reasons that railroad barons turned into railroad barons is not just that anyone becomes fantastically wealthy from um, owning a railroad, but that in particular, if you own the construction companies that are building the railroads, then you get people to invest in the railroads and then your construction companies just submit ridiculous bids. So the investors of the railroads get screwed. You walk away with all the money as the owner of both in, in this vertically um, owned um, conglomerate of sorts. And so as I was learning about this, then I started learning about Berkshire Hathaway and, and the power companies that John's talking about and learning about how Berkshire Hathaway, one of the things it did, for instance, it owns the trains that lead to the power plants so they can charge a lot of money for the coal to transport the coal. And the, and the ratepayers have to pay it because the Public Utility Commission is regulating the price of the electricity. And if the price of the inputs goes up a lot, well, then people just pay more for their electricity. I think this vertical merger issue issue is, um, is really good that the economists are recognizing it and the damage that can be done under it. 
Um, but John, I'm just curious if you have any reflections um, either about vertical mergers, coal plants, <laughs> or or um, just in general, actually, how we're doing at the end of 2017 versus the beginning of it. Well, I would agree that over the course of the year, you know, the anti-monopoly conversation that has been happening in the rest of the country, I think, is both feeding off of and feeding back into the anti-monopoly uh, attitudes that have been infusing the electricity business and the energy business. Um, you know, with every passing month, there's kind of new innovation and in decentralized and distributed technology. Uh, there is more growth of community-based solutions, whether that's ways that we can invest collectively or uh, ways that people can uh, have actual choices. And I think it's, you know, it's helpful because this sector is defined by monopoly for over a hundred years. And so people already knew that it was in a monopoly. Like it's a, it's a known fact that we started with monopoly and that we're moving away from it. Whereas I think uh, the challenge I see in some of our other sectors of our economy is that we have had to describe it as a monopoly for people to understand, like you, you like your work on Amazon. And so I think when I look at the energy sector, I I am very optimistic about the fact that, you know, not just this enormous story about 40 billions of wasted uh, ratepayer money down in the Southeast, but that people are really focused on what are the motivations of the companies who have this monopoly power? How have they exercised it in a way that's not in our interest and clearly not in our interest? And therefore, what solutions can we turn to to give us those better choices? I think that's what is coming up here at the end of 2017 and, and into next year. And I'm curious, as someone who's followed Boulder very closely, where for several years they've been fighting to municipalize the electric utility to be able to have control of their future, what advice do you give to random community A that asks you, is this the best use of our time? Should we be trying to municipalize or should we work around them? What should we be doing to, to build local power to deal with this monopoly in a way that we can at the local level? I think random community A might need a communications uh, consultant to pick a better name, first of all, Chris. But what I would say is that Boulder has looked at the choices that it had in front of it for how it could exercise uh, more local authority, how it could get more of what it wanted, and settled on municipalization, uh, you know, taking over the utility as, as really their only substantive option. So what I would say to cities, you know, and this harkens back, there was a campaign here in Minneapolis about four years ago called Minneapolis Energy Options. It, it was run at the same time as the uh, municipal elections. And I think the beauty of that concept is that we, we need to look at all the options that are on the table. So the city of Minneapolis, Minnesota could form a municipal utility. There's a statute that gives it that legal authority. But there might be a lot of other ways that it could do that, too. It could look at purchasing power directly from energy producers and then having it transmitted to the city. Uh, it could facilitate community-based energy production. Um, it could use its own water utility uh, because it has a utility already to offer financing for energy. Um, so I think there's a lot of options. And, you know, municipalization is it takes a long time. It takes a lot of lawyers. Uh, and it's not necessarily the, the best strategy, but it, it should always be there on the table as the big stick that you have uh, while you pursue other choices that you might have. Stacey, I was curious, something I read uh, just today um, about Amazon was making me think about kind of like what what is a response that we can have to the way that Amazon's market power is growing? Um, it was about the Amazon selling Apple TV and Chromecast, these two you know video streaming devices. And Amazon is now going to start selling them again after two years of prohibiting their sale. 
uh, because they were waiting for Apple to provide in its software on its streaming device access to Amazon Prime Video. So they essentially said, we're not going to sell your product until it allows people to buy our service. Uh, and that seems to be that power of that platform. Now, ironically, we're talking about two of the titans in terms of monopoly power fighting each other. But what I'm curious is, like, what what is there that gives us hope to change that? You know, you've you've documented, I think, extensively the degree to which Amazon is growing its power, that controls the amount of searches for e-commerce. You know, the feeling that people businesses have that they need access to that platform. We're having better conversations, I think, about antitrust and federal enforcement. But what are our other ways? What are other means for small businesses or for consumers, for citizens uh, to participate in changing this system? Let me let me first say that in terms of actually restructuring Amazon in a way that would open up competition on for e-commerce is entirely possible. And although Amazon is something very new in the history of, of the U.S. economy. It does have these antecedents, um, you know, the railroads being a good example of a similar kind of setup where you essentially had very powerful players controlling who got to market. And that's what Amazon has become in its major lines of business. So in terms of using um, the, the powers of antitrust law, it's all there. Um, so at the federal level, we can and should uh, break Amazon into at least two pieces so that it as a platform, as a, um, as a platform that other companies depend on in order to reach the market, is a separate entity than Amazon as a retailer and a, a manufacturer of products. Because it, there's an inherently a conflict of interest there, uh, which is how Am, you know is why and how Amazon uses its market power to undermine those competitors. So we should break it into at least two pieces. We should also apply common carrier kinds of regulations to Amazon's platform so that it has to treat all comers fairly uh, and in the public interest, according to a set of, of guidelines. There, we also need to think about data. Um, you know, one of the things that gives these you know, big tech companies, their power now is the enormous amount of data that they have. And the fact that a newcomer to the marketplace can't replicate that and therefore is at an inherent disadvantage and is easily sort of blocked from being able to compete. There's a lot of good thinking going on about how to handle data, you know, whether it's that, you know, people ought to own their own data and be able to it to other companies, um, you know, how we should regulate this use. You know, they're thinking about it quite closely in Europe and so on. Um, so there are tools there at the federal level. I would say to your question about sort of what does citizens do, I think that we have to keep raising this issue and continuing to talk about it locally. And in particular, we need to get our local and state lawmakers sensitized to what's happening to our local economies. I mean, you know, a huge amount of our tax base is the commercial businesses, the, you know, the uh, Main Street retailers that make up our, our, our streets and that provide a lot of our property and sales tax revenue. There really isn't a sense at the local level of what's at stake and how many jobs are associated with this. Um, and what you see is you've got cities all over the country who are, for example, putting big bids in to get Amazon's second headquarters, where we're talking about giving away you know, literally billions of dollars in public money to land Amazon's headquarters. We've got a lot of subsidies for warehouses. So there are a lot of ways in which local governments and local communities have been fueling this as well. Um, and we need to, you know, that's a, that's part of how we need to push back against this. It's one of those things where I think a lot of us are thinking it's getting so dark. The economy is getting so monopolized. This rising anti-monopoly gives us a uh, hope, but also there's just a sense of there's almost nowhere else to go from here. I mean, um, it's not like we're going to just be satisfied with these monopolies. I think we are going to see more organization against them. But 
We're running out of time here. We were hoping to talk a little bit more about where we think it's going to go. Let me leave this as an exercise for people who are listening, which is to say, you will determine where this goes. Let's make sure that we're organizing around things that we need, um, you know, in, in solving this problem the right way, uh, making sure that we're breaking power up and, and increasing power at the local level so that we can resolve problems without um, you know, needing, you know, uh, another big firm. So, you know, make sure that we solve the problem of Amazon in a way that doesn't just give Apple more power, for instance. Um, I think we should we should wrap up though with some recommendations. I was going to suggest that um, uh, people who are interested in the net neutrality stuff, rather than suggesting an article, um, there are two reporters who are among many who are doing really great work. I can't list them all, but John Brodkin writes for Ars Technica, and it's a wonderful site that does a lot of in-depth technical news. Um, his writing on on the net neutrality stuff is great. And Kaylee Rogers is a writer for Motherboard, which is a, a bit more irreverent and in some ways um, just very in-your-face news about technology issues. I recommend following both of them. John, can I guess that you're going to recommend a, a certain article from uh, South Carolina? You're not wrong in that. Um it is a tremendous piece of journalism from the Post and Courier. I actually don't have the title in front of me here, but um, I'm sure that we'll share it on our website. It is a really remarkable expose of the way that these monopoly utility companies operate uh, and the implications uh, for electric customers. Um, what I would say, though, in terms of a recommendation is um, check out a resource that we've been building uh, called the Community Power Toolkit on ILSR.org that looks at the ways that we can act collectively to solve this problem. Not only uh, ways that we can do, for example, group purchasing of solar, so getting into this market and helping to reduce our energy use and become more self-reliant, the things that we can ask our utility to do and to change, and, um, and finally, the things that we can ask our cities to do, because cities do have more authority than they think over our energy system, and, and there are many ways that they can act to change it. Uh, Chris has graciously pulled up the title of the piece uh, that I recommend you read, uh, Power Failure, How Utilities Across the U.S. Changed the Rules to Make Big Bets with Your Money uh, by Tony Bartelome. Um, highly recommend that piece. And Stacy, I understand that you've assembled a list of things that our listeners must read before the next show. <laughs> no, but I have a few things to recommend. Um, one is this Law and Political Economy blog, which has a great piece up now um, by Frank Pasquale about uh, how Amazon is essentially taking over the functions of government. And it's really an insightful piece and gets to the core of what one of the problems is with these new modern monopolies. And it's a great, it's a great blog overall, but I would definitely recommend uh, his short post about that. And then the other thing I would say is that we've um, posted a number of resources recently for people who want to take action locally. Uh, the one I would point people to that's on our website um, at ILSR.org, and if you go over to the independent business section, we have eight policy strategies that cities can adopt to strengthen locally owned businesses. We've also got some short videos up of recent presentations that talk about um, what it is that people can do at the local level to um, you know, really take control of local economic development and create a more vibrant local economy and kind of insulate your community from some of the effects of monopoly power that we've been talking about. Well, one of the things that I think we can count on is that because we have repealed network neutrality, FCC Chairman Ajit Pai assures me personally that Charter will now have the money to invest in getting you a better connection, Stacey, so that we won't have these glitches anymore. 
Is Charter the parent company of Spectrum? Yes, yes. Spectrum um, is uh, the name that they picked to obscure the fact that it's Charter because Charter has such a bad name, much in the same way that Comcast uses the name Xfinity to hide the fact that they are Comcast. Ah, thank you for that note, because, you know, this is like the invisible reality of monopolies. If you're not studying these issues, you often think that, you know, this is another company, but it turns out it's just one of the big four. That's right. Well, um, this is a fun discussion. So thanks. Thank you for listening to Building Local Power. You can find links to what we discussed today by going to our website, ILSR.org, and clicking on the show page for this episode. You can sign up for one of our newsletters and connect with us on all of the internet's social medias. This show is produced by Lisa Gonzalez and Nick Stumolanger. Our theme music? It's Funk Interlude by Dysfunctional. For the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, I'm Christopher Mitchell. 2018 is looking like a good time to build local power. We'll see you there. We'll be right back.